Connections Cast, brought to you by TDN Australia and New Zealand. Hello, I'm Angus Rowland and welcome to TDN OzNZ's Connections Cast, long-form conversations with the industry's greatest minds, presented by Newgate, raising top-class racehorses. Well, to paraphrase Bill Shakespeare, all the world's an auction ring, and today's guest struts upon that stage in a way few can replicate. A reformed teaching student that has convinced people to acquire all kinds of horsepower across the Southern Hemisphere, he's been integral to the commemoration of New Zealand's racing's equine and human history makers, and has graced TV screens on both sides of the Tasman. It was in this capacity that I first interacted with Steve Davis. He schooled me on how to do a piece to camera outside without squinting. I'm still not sure whether you're punking me, Steve, uh, but I do need glasses to read. Do you still swear by the technique of closing your eyes and facing directly at the sun? Yeah, that tends to be the go. I was passed on that information. It's not it's not something I came up with. I dare say it's been handed down by uh, from generation of uh, TV presenters over the time. Let's talk very quickly about the news coming out of uh, one of your employers, New Zealand Bloodstock, uh, over the last couple of weeks about the transfer, the momentous transfer of, of, of dates for the New Zealand Bloodstock sale uh, to, well, pretty much to Wharton. What is your feel on the date change? Uh, are you behind it 100%? And what benefits does it potentially bring? You know, they were left with no option. At the, the, the stage when they made that decision, there was no chance that the Australians were going to be able to get there, but would appear by the end of, uh, end of January. And the hopes was by putting it back to March and making that decision early in terms of the preparation of yearlings, et cetera, that um, one, it gave surety to the breeders as to when they can bring their horses in to prep them for the sale. Uh, get staff involved, etc. But also gave an opportunity perhaps for the borders to open up because the one mm. thing that uh, the sales here and, I, and having spoken to a lot of Australians, they just would love to come back to New Zealand to buy to buy horses. So I suppose everything it, made, it seemed at the time to be a great decision. And of course, post that, uh, our government for whatever reason has made the decision that uh, the borders won't open up till the end of April. So it's rather frustrating, I doubt, for the, the powers that be at NZB, uh, whether they can come up with some arrangement with the government that they can utilise their hotel to facilitate some of the Australians coming in to utilise that venue in, in a COVID sort of safe way. I don't know. Uh, but, yeah, look, it is frustrating. Uh, you know, um, as it turns out, perhaps they could have stayed at the end of January, wouldn't have made any difference, perhaps. But who knows? You know, this is a ever-moving thing, Gus, we may see that, you know, the government's moved and by that stage, by the March dates, they've said that, you know, Australians will be able to, to come into the country without having to quarantine. It's, I think the interesting thing to see will be whether there is a measurable impact uh, from proximity to the, the three-year-old classics, the Oaks and the Derby and, and, and the racing uh, uh, universe, if you like, that the sales traditionally orbit. Obviously, Caracas always had the, the million uh, attached to it and and the big meetings at Trentham, but Ellerslie's where it's at. And, and this move could potentially be beneficial in that regard, right? 
Yeah, well, I mean, that's always the hope, you know, and that's all like, you know, you've got to look at the alternatives that you have and play the best cards you've got. No doubt that the powers that be at NZB have sat down and looked at the alternatives, looked at the, the opportunities and perhaps see an opportunity there. I know I've spoken to a number of the breeders that are out there and uh, they're loving the fact that uh, they, they're going to probably have Christmas uh, a little bit quieter than normal. And, and, and so uh, who knows? It may become the norm. Uh, I don't know. It depends, obviously, how successful the sale is in March. Look, this isn't the first change you've seen, Steve. I mean, I think about your journey to this point and your story is one of those. You don't have to be a trainer or out of a famous breeding family in order to find a fulfilling career in the thoroughbred industry. Am I right that your racing or thoroughbred genesis was the classic, my old man liked to have a punt and we'd go to the races together? Exactly, Gus. You know, my dad, he was only a small punter, but my fondest memories were getting up on a Saturday morning uh, my father invariably was up first. He was in the kitchen. The light would be on under the door. He opened the door into the kitchen and uh, trying to find his doubles. Um, and I was the same. You know, I used to obviously fell into that and used to do the lawns for $3. Uh, I could either take six 50 cent doubles or dad had come in halves with me and I'd end up with uh, a combination and, and spend you $3. You know, that was my go. That was that was life. I mean, we used to get the money out of the Christmas pudding, my cousin and I, and we'd, we'd go and have uh, our, our double, our 50 cent double. And, uh, you know, we'd go to the races at Hawke's Bay. Um, my father would travel. I'd go with him. You know, it, it's just, I, I couldn't tell you the pedigrees. My my cousin would follow all that stuff, John Howell. I was always, you know, enamored by the fact he knew all the pedigrees. But I could tell you who worked the best at tacking inning on a Thursday because I read the Friday Flash, you know. What was the scene like back then? I, I remember growing up in the Armadale region in northwest New South Wales, and I still can't walk past a bucket of hot chips with some tomato sauce without being transported back to those early days at the at the track. We used to go and park another car there at the race course just so that you had a decent park. Uh, back in those days, you know, Christ now, you, you know, you can go an hour after the first race and you're probably only in the second row of cars, sadly, yeah. on, a, on a lesser day. Uh, look, there was there was sawdust on the floor. Of the, I mean, that's how old I am, Gus. There was sawdust on the floor of the public bar on the back, and you had to go behind. You had to go behind the tote to collect. You put on one side of the tote, and you had to go round the back of the tote. Colloquially, they say, "I'll see you round the back of the tote." It means you're collecting, you are winning. Uh, you'd sit there, and they used to bang out manually. You'd go to the TAB. They'd handwrite the tickets to the TAB. And, you know, Anzac Day. You know, the TABs wouldn't open. You had to go the night before, the day before, to have a bet yeah. in the first race because it closed 50 minutes before the first race. They didn't open because of Anzac Day in time. Look, you know, great memories. Great me and, and sadly, too, can I say that's one of the problems that racing had. Back in the old days, and I say the old days, 12-year-olds, uh, you know, if you were 12-year-old and under, you couldn't get on the member stand. And we lost a generation as a result of that. You yeah. know, we, we, you know we, we overlooked the fact that, that generation had young people that want to come to them. They didn't want to sit perhaps in the public. And, the, and we had this aloof sort of, I don't know, way of thinking that, oh, no, we, we can't have young children running around the grandstand, you know. We can't have that. So sadly, I believe one of the, one of the, the problems we had in the industry was closing the, the member stand to 12-year-olds. I know that changed over time. But, you know, we had, God, I tell you what, at Hawke's Bay, and it probably was at other courses too, we had a floor for men only. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't. I don't think Hawke's Bay was the only place there. No, exactly. I don't think New Zealand was the only country either. No. Uh, to be honest. So you know, and, and and I can still remember when they opened it up to ladies. When my father was still alive, and uh, he thought it'd be the the end of racing, so to speak. You know, that's the way he's. You know, in those 
generational time saw it as a bastion that it's sort of this this area that he could go where it was just men only you know that's you know way thank, thankfully things have changed yeah ain't that the truth i reckon the carpet on the first floor is still the same Unless it's carpet, not sawdust. Yeah, were, well, that's, that's, that's out the back, yeah. You're old enough to remember the, the sawdust. Thankfully, you're not so old that universities hadn't been invented yet. You studied to be a teacher. Is that yeah. is that right? Yeah, I did. You know, I had great ambitions of being a teacher. Um, and and probably, you know, I, you know, I thank an ex-girlfriend for the fact that I'm in the position I am. Um, we broke up. I I struggled with that, being young and emotional. Uh, ended up going to Auckland, and while at Teachers College, was boarding with a family just down from uh, Epsom, Alexandra Park, yeah. and uh, it was by virtue of going down there one Sunday and watching the Sunday workouts, having a go at race calling. You know, if you take the steps, the lines, that's where it all started. So, I feel like the job of teacher along with, say, policeman and accountant, and certainly if you listen to most uh, uh, professionals in the sporting spheres, is just one of those jobs that people take and it turns out to be a placeholder for, for a, a career in that sort of sporting sphere, and particularly in the non-professional days. Obviously, it was what they went and did when they mm, weren't yeah. playing for the All Blacks or, or, or what have you. Was your plan always to go, follow through, matriculate and become a teacher or was no, it just no. while you worked out what you were doing? No, no, no question. No, I, look, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed, you know, I, on section, you know, you go out and you teach, you know, for those two-week periods or whatever else. And I love the fact you'd see the light come on, you know, the light would come on. They'd understand it. They'd, you know, all of a sudden they could see how it worked and that gives you a great deal of pleasure. Um, I used to do a thing when I was at Teachers College uh, like parts out of um, adverts and you had to guess the advert because TV was a significant part of people's lives, not the computer now or the hand or the phone and everything else. In those days, it was watching TV. And so I'd do a thing out of adverts, you know, and you had to guess what the product was, et cetera. And, and it was great to see kids that were pretty shy and not keen to get up in front of the class getting up and having a go, you know. And so yeah. you loved it, you know. You love seeing that change in kids, bringing out the best and, and I, I got to be honest, Gus. I, I did love the teaching. It's not, not a, a total regret, but I, it's certainly something I wouldn't have minded actually fulfilling. You know. This podcast is brought to you by Newgate, raising top-class racehorses. Newgate has built a reputation not only as a leading stallion farm, but a leading stallion nursery. In the last few years alone, yearling buyers could have purchased stallion prospects of the quality of champion first season sire better than ready. Vinery Studs Coolmore Stud Stakes winner Exceedance, Jubawi's Group 1 winning champion two-year-old of South Africa Willow Magic, Group 1 McKinnon Stakes winner and young Western Australian sire Awesome Rock, Cambridge Studs champion two-year-old Sword of State and Newgate's very own champion two-year-old and Golden Slipper winner Stay Inside. Newgate, raising and consigning top-class future stallions. You referenced Alexandra Park listening to the callers, uh, uh, the workouts, and thinking, well, I might give give this a go, give it a crack. Yeah. Talk me oh. through how that happened. I mean, it's not just a matter, it wasn't a matter of just walking up and saying, can I hold that microphone, was it? Yeah, it was actually. Uh, there was a bloke doing it, um, and I used to push Maxbox toys around and do Reg Clap Peter Kelly impressions, and uh, this guy was calling with the megaphone, and uh, it was on a bit of an angle today, and I thought, geez, I used to do 
better than that when I was pushing my Matchbox toys around. So, and he didn't seem to be that keen on doing it. So when I went to him and I said, mate, you know, can I have a go? He was bloody pleased for me to have it. So I did a couple of heats and he was about to come back because he was only going to do a couple. And uh, a man called Leon Legalis, who was then president of the OTB uh, that ran the trials, came up and said, who the heck are you? And I said, I'm Steve Davis. And uh, he said, you want to keep doing this? And uh, I thought, geez, how good is this? Sundays, I'd go down to John Tudor and, and he's, the, the racing people, and we used to have beers after. So you do the... You do the Sunday workouts um, and, uh, you know, you'd sit down with these people you'd be reading about, et cetera, and here you were socialising with them. And <laughs> it was marvellous, you know. And, you know, it didn't, you know, lose the fact that, you know, also my punting improved as a result of knowing the information that was coming out. So uh, it, I joined the committee of the OTB and uh, took buses away. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was great, you know, when I think back at that, at that period of time. And it was a Ken Kramer Roberts who came to me and said, have you ever done any auctioneering? And I yeah. said, no. I said, but I used to joke with my father about having a job like Peter Kelly and getting paid to go to the races. And he mm -hmm. said, well, you know, you should go off and get some experience because I, I still wanted to be a teacher and use the, your, your holidays, your, your school holidays, you know, university holidays to get some experience. And then um, he could use me on a part-time basis. Well, of course, you know, when the board of directors for Teachers College decided I should pursue another line of employment, I was left with no alternative but to stay where I'd managed to score a job with NMA. Oh, it's, a, it's not the worst position to, to, to be in. It's interesting, too, the twin disciplines of, of uh, describing four-legged beasts running in a circle and selling four-legged beasts moving in a circle are, I think, more than people would realise in 2021, quite similar the cadence you have to, to yeah. build and the ability to think on the run while maintaining a timbre to your voice is that something you had to work on or did you, without bragging were you a natural uh, i wouldn't say a natural but i mean we all mimic and that's what i, I we no doubt we might touch on it later when i when i have taken auction classes and I've, I've done a couple of schools here in new zealand with stock companies uh with a stock company and i've always said to them you know Mimic the best auctioneer, uh, and much, and so I I probably mimic Peter Kelly and Reg Clapp, you know, and uh, and as a result of that, you yeah, you've got to have an ability, you know, and I, I marvel at the the George Simons of this world and 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 those others, you know, their ability, you know, David Raphael, you know, I thought mm. geez, he was outstanding, David Raphael, you know, I think he's probably one of the best race callers I've ever ever heard, and and an alcoholic state i actually told him that straight to his face <laughs> you are the best race caller in the world it was outstanding and and look the 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 i guess that sort of leads me on to the to the next question it's it's around what you are describing the auction scene was very different when you started out in, in New Zealand, uh, the companies that we now, the, the, tri, the trifecta of companies in, in ANZ, Magic Millions, New Zealand Bloodstock, Inglis, weren't this sort of tripolithic presence that they are now. There were a lot of operators and they were selling a lot more. Dalgettys, Wrightsons, and I know Wrightsons evolved and, and, and that sort of thing. And obviously over here in Australia, every, every town had a, a place selling horses, livestock, and something that you had to go at, cars. What was it like? Yeah, I suppose when you think back, there was Goodwood, there were Dalgettys um, on either side of Tasman. 
Except, yeah, there were opportunities perhaps to come through. Uh, at that stage, I started off in an NMA uh, on, the, on the stock and station side of it because mm -hmm. I'd gone to Bloodstock about an opportunity and, and Michael Floyd had said, look, there's only 28 people working for us. There's no opportunities here. And if there is, we'll take one from the agricultural side. So that's, again, how it evolved. I had a suit on. I went down to the second floor, saw John Hudson and, and spoke to him. And in those days, Gus, you know, you could do that you could walk in off the street to some extent i told him i you know done public speaking at school was doing the race calling etc and and i scored a job you know and I'm, i know that's you know it's easy to say that it, it was easier than then uh it's a bit like the dali flying starters that gives you a real leg up you know so mm. um there's opportunity there you, you obviously i didn't have any educational background i just had a desire and an interest in perhaps pursuing this this job, you know, and that stage it was going to be my just my holiday job, you know. I thought this is great, you know, cop this, yeah. stay in Auckland, earn some money, say thanks very much, go back to being a teacher, uh, training to be a teacher. But you know, as I say, the the board decided that perhaps teaching wasn't for me. When did the to use your term when discussing your students? When did the the light go on for you? That not just look, I'm going to have to go down this route, but well, this is something I really enjoy. Yeah, look, I, I suppose it just grew and grew mm. and grew, mm. and um, yeah, I, I and exactly, and I think you're right. I mean, my thoughts of joining Bloodstock, um, you know, I, I put that aside. I was just enjoying being an auctioneer, and it wasn't until you know, I'd, I'd signed from NMA, went into commercial auctions, which was selling everything that didn't breathe. And as I say, I worked with Kevin O'Connor, who was the best general auctioneer I've ever worked with. He taught me so much, yeah. not so much sat me down at all, but you sat because you clerked next to him and, and you watched and, you know, he, he taught you what you did. And uh, we then took on uh, rights and decided to move into the car business. And they asked Kevin to do it. And Kevin said no. Um, and they were going to fly somebody up from Wellington. Uh, as it turned out, they told me later, and they said, oh, look, let's use young Steve. And so that's basically where my first real break came, uh, was doing the car auctions. And while I was doing the car auctions and the guy that was managing it left, I ended up managing the, the car auction business, going out to get stock, selling it, doing it, everything, along with Jack Simmons and the commercial auctions. But while that happened, Gus, Peter Kelly had had a heart attack. And um, Michael Floyd was then faced with a situation that obviously they didn't have a succession plan. And Michael Floyd, I can still distinctly remember him coming out to the sale. And I thought he'd come out to buy a car for one of his daughters. And uh, obviously he'd come out to listen to me. And um, Jack Simmons pulled me aside, you know, a week later and said, Steve, you, you know, you're going to go to Bloodstock. You buy better at Inglis. Since 2018, Inglis Classic has produced eight Group 1 winning graduates and 46 Australian stakes winners that could have been bought for $100,000 or less. They include Hot King Prawn, Pippi, Thou and Declare, In Her Time, Sarmad Out, Extra Brute, Made of Heaven and Hellbent. 810 lots are catalogued for Inglis Classic 2022. Inglis, buy better. Is there a, a difference in your approach depending on what you're selling or do you find that you have developed over time the Steve Davis method and, and that sort of is transferable um, to a degree? 
it is it's transferable to the degree because you're dealing with the psychological thing about buying you know um you know always buy the one you want rather than the one that's left i love that line because it, it gets people every time because if you stop and think about it geez yeah i'm gonna buy the one i want rather than the one yeah. that's left and so if i'm doing art which i do a little bit of art auctions uh works well i've had no luck with real estate you know and that's mm. you know god bless clint donovan who's who's transitioned into real estate really well um maybe it doesn't happen quick enough for me i don't know i've just been a little unlucky but um i'm seven and oh gus with real <laughs> yeah in terms of in terms of in terms of clearance right yeah, yeah i'm seven and oh in fact i don't think i've really had a live bid uh in all my yeah. seven options of real estate in my career and it goes right back to beginning i did three uh really early on and then i did three for a a nice guy down at uh, Tim, uh, down in Christchurch. I was flying down and, uh, yeah, no luck whatsoever. And then I did the last one. I was a farm at Danny Burke. So, again, uh, people ring me now and I say, listen. And they say, Steve, would you do my auction? And I said, listen, I'm 7-0, and you know, or 6-0 and or 7-0. and <laughs> And they say, yeah, uh, thanks. Yeah, we'll get someone else. Yeah, <laughs> don't, don't call us. We'll call you. Well, if someone calls you from Bondi um, uh, wanting to sell their place, oh, I could sell. One of those. Yeah, that's, uh, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a soft kill, but just to get my confidence up. But you know, I've you know, I'm, I'm in awe of the likes of uh, Clint. You know, who does the the auction. He, I mean, it, he transitions into both bloodstock and uh, into real estate very easily. And I suppose, I mean, I've I've done the artwork. Uh, I remember my first art auction, and I didn't know what I was doing. Obviously, I pre-see on what I was selling. But you're doing fifty lots an hour. You're getting through them pretty quick. Anyway, I went back to the guy that was uh, overseeing it and I said, uh, so how did I go? And uh, he said, mate, it's the first time we've done an auction and people haven't left the room. So <laughs> it, it went pretty well. And of course, the, the, half, the exciting is half the people haven't heard all my jokes. So it's, it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's a, a new audience. A yeah, new, new audience. <laughs> all right. Well, let's shift focus. Let's narrow focus a little bit towards uh, the thoroughbreds. A question I've always wanted to ask you is, you, from, from what you're telling me, you loved racing, enjoyed auctioneering, found you had a talent for it, and then found your way into the, the bloodstock uh, world, probably a little later than you would have liked, but you found your way in. My question is, how much work did you have to do on bloodstock? Uh, in terms of learning pedigrees, learning about horses, uh, that that sort of stuff. What, what sort of a learning curve did you feel you needed to go on once well, no, you started? To be fair, Gus, that's the advantage of what was then Rights and Bloodstock because they had a pedigree department. And, uh -huh. uh, you know, and of course you, you spent time um, doing air freight a little bit, but I was in the pedigree department for, for some time. Jane Bunbury was running it. In fact, we, I was chatting with one of the guys from Arian, which is now Arian Pedigree. Yeah, yeah, okay. And uh, Andrew Stewart, I was talking to him. And, and I can still remember Jane Bunbury when I finally left uh, the pedigree department, moved to somewhere else. She said, I, I can now appreciate you, Stephen, because I used to talk. I used to, it was like working in a morgue. You know, <laughs> just round circle thing and nobody would talk and you'd go up and you'd and you'd be doing you know it might be sir tristram out of tyona you know what are you doing sir tristram out of tyona you know and you'd be working away and so that developed that side of it so yeah i, I was fortunate and and perhaps it doesn't happen now or doesn't happen with a lot of bloodstock companies because arian now do it all um that you had that day-to-day -day involvement in the pedigree how it's constructed and how it all works and interrelated 
And from actual knowing a horse, uh, one of the biggest assets I had, I was fortunate to go out with Dr. Ross Teitzel um, mm. when I was in Melbourne and spent time in it and used to go around the sales with Ross Teitzel. And you learn, you know, again, you stand next to Ross Teitzel and, and you listen. And, and I've taken the opportunity of, of standing next to, you know, the likes of John Foote, even in recent times, just, you know, this year I, I spent time with John Foote. It's just great to stand there and, and ask questions and see what they see and everything else, you know. How much do you lean on that? Because, and this is ignorance talking on my part, but a yearling sale attracts a group of fairly, a fairly educated audience, you, you would say, to a degree. Uh, they generally are given a manual in a catalogue. How much do you recruit from your sort of knowledge and experience in the actual selling of a horse? A lot, because, you know, yeah. when I'm looking, I go and look at every horse I sell for a start. So I'll make a note physically on the horse, you know, look for the positives. I'm always looking for the positive, but also I'll note the negatives, you know, just in case it doesn't sell or to talk yeah. to the owner or, or the vendor as to why, you know, where I think we might be in trouble. But you're also looking at the pedigree makeup. There could be a reason why this breeder bred the horse. It's a three-quarter relation to something. And so yes. you're highlighting that, you know, look at the hind quarter, look at the way it walks. And so what you're trying to do as an auctioneer is reinforce in the mind of the buyer who's seen the same thing. And, and so from an auctioneering point of view, yeah, it's not a case. And I've worked with auctioneers, oh, it's a nice horse here, it's a nice horse, this is a good horse, it's a nice horse, this isn't a nice horse, it's a good horse. You know, everything's bloody nice. Well, not everything is nice, you know? So you've got to you've got to pull back from that and have a bit of colour in terms of uh, this may not be a nice, you're not going to say it's a not, not a nice horse, but you're going to highlight what is positive about it, you know? Mm. It's, it's a pedigree or something else, you know, that is going to reinforce in the mind of someone who gave an opportunity of buying the horse, you know. And I think that's one of the keys is, if, you know, if you get that situation where people trust you to, when you stand up, say, hey, ladies and gentlemen, you bang the gavel on the, you know, and, hey, look here, it's a nice horse. And people come with you, you know, and you yeah. get to that stage, then, you know, you're, a, you're an advantage over your, your fellow auctioneers. Is there an element too of marrying that that knowledge to an individual buyer? So, for instance, you you see you look around, and you've said before that it's much easier to see the crowd in a, a New Zealand bloodstock ring than it is yeah. say, the Magic Millions one. So, let's use New Zealand bloodstock as the example. You you see uh, uh, somebody who you know is trained a relative of this horse. They're here potentially to bid, but they haven't stuck their hand in the air. Uh, yet, or you're having difficulty making them stick their hand in the air again. Do you bring in that that sort of uh, relative knowledge as well? Is that something that's in the arsenal? Yeah, look, no, no, Gus, I say anything I think to try and sell the horse, you know, the end of the day. Uh, and yeah, you, you may be aware of that. And you and I look, I'm very fortunate because I sell predominantly for Magic Millions, but also do the sales in New Zealand, obviously uh, in South Africa as well, that I've formed over the years in an association with some of these buyers, you know, and I've, I now have buyers and have had buyers, you know. Uh, Karen Moore and I had a lot of fun uh, at one sale in New Zealand where he said, Steve, uh, I'm going to have the, the pen in the book while the pen in the book is you just keep taking my bid. Well, the bid spotter didn't know. I knew. And, uh, and we did. We worked it. And it just, you know, upset the other people. No one knew where the bids were coming from. In wow. 100,000, 25, it's not you. 50, 70, not you. 325, not you, you know. And so 
you know, you, you form that relationship sometimes. It didn't happen all the time. It's happened no. a couple of times. You know, we, we joke about it, you know. Karen was back at the sales, you know, this year for the first time for a long time. Um, so, yeah, look, you know, and there's also obviously, you know, in, in New Zealand, you've got David Ellis to your right, et cetera. And, yeah, and you've got to cajole them. You've got Graham Rogerson, you know, you, you work the, you work these people, you know, because you're mm. with them every day, you know. Yeah. Have you ever had anyone you just couldn't break down? That, that, that you, you know, that are Steve Davis proof. Oh, you, look, like. I, no question. You know, and I, I, I say that we, we don't actually, I mean, there are times when we have an, you feel as if you have an influence, Gus, but primarily people have got a budget. That's their budget. You know, you know, you got 200, you got 200. The company said you can spend 200. You can't get them to go to 210, mm. you know, mm. and, and hopefully, you know, uh, you know, the good ones cost no more. At the end of the day, if it runs and it's the one you've wanted, you've bought it, you own it, you know. Twenty twenty two sales season is fast approaching, and if you want integrity you can trust, you need a Federation of Bloodstock Agents Australia accredited member. FBAA members are guided by a strict code of ethics, making them accountable in all dealings and giving confidence that you will be represented to the highest possible standard. For contact details of FBAA agents, head to bloodstockagents.com.au and secure peace of mind today. You referenced the fact that you're primarily with Magic Millions these days. Talk to me about the genesis of the Magic Millions relationship. Did it come when millions came to New Zealand? And if so, can you explain that short window of time when Magic Millions had a presence in New Zealand? Uh, well, with Magic Millions uh, had two presents in New Zealand. Uh, one was down in Trentham, which I wasn't involved. That was when it was Wrightson's. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Wrightson's and Magic Millions at one stage were looking at setting up in Melbourne, uh, doing a joint venture type situation in Melbourne many, many years ago. And I was going to go over and work there. And that's how sort of that relationship sort of involvement started. But then uh, it was in 97 uh, when I was working for New Zealand Bloodstocks at that stage. And I got invited over uh, to do a sale um, at the Gold Coast. It must have been a January sale. Yeah, the January sale. And uh, I sold with Nick Nugent and David Chester. I was a guest auctioneer. And uh, uh, things weren't working out. And um, by, you know, March, I'd left of that year, New Zealand Bloodstock. On the very day, ironically, David Chester rang to see if I could come back and do the June sale. And I said, you know what? (laughs) Which was a one-day sale back then. I've actually got plenty of time, you know. (laughs) I am free. (laughs) I am free. So we went over, we had a discussion, and um, I spoke with Don Hancock, and we looked at running, and we did. We ran a couple of sales in New Zealand at Cambridge Lodge uh, under the auspice then of Magic Millions. Um, But it just financially didn't work out that well. Um, so we pulled out and then about a year later, um, I was asked if I would go back and sell, um, at, at New Zealand bloodstock, um, for the, for the sales as well, which magic millions, you know, by that stage, I was representing magic millions and magic millions said, yes, uh, that allow me Don Hancock allowed that to happen. So I ended up selling for both New Zealand bloodstock and for, for magic millions. Um, and probably about the same time, um, Robin Bruss got me over to South Africa. Um, and I did a guest spot there for the sale in 2001 or two, whatever it was. And apart from COVID, I've been back just about every year since. What, give me your first impressions of the, of the South Africa scene. 
what was it like when you when you 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 sort of landed and got got going? Well, I was you know I was selling with Peter Lovemore. He'd come out to Australia and sold there. Uh, I can remember the late Frank Mitchell saying, "Bloody Peter Lovemore!" Grant, he ended up on the front page of the Age because he was a sensational auctioneer. He was a tobacco auctioneer. You know, he sang. You know, and he and he was just. Wow. And so here I was going off to sell with him. And I didn't know whether he sold like the Americans called the bitter head or called the bitty hat or whatever. And so I was a bit bit of intrepidation. Yeah. Um, and but he did. He called the bitty hat, so it made it easier. Uh, Brian Aquilabara, who we, he had a company with in Zimbabwe, uh, the three of us sold there for the first time. And you know, at that stage they were they were a bit worried because um, you know Peter Lovemore had sold for them. Brian Aquilabara and myself hadn't. So we were two novices getting up and. My memory is that we averaged 100,000 rand, or the industry averaged 100,000 rand for the first time. Um, that invited me out, sent me to game parks and thing, and they said, well, Steve, we'd love you to come back. And I said, well, look, you've, you've seen one elephant, you've seen them all. Uh, we're probably going to have to get paid. And um, so they, they said that'd be fine. So, yeah, it's sort of, it's been gone since then, you know. Uh, so they went through dramatic growth. Um, we went from 100,000 average to 380 at one stage, got up to 380,000. Um, we had a lot of interest coming in from Europe, uh, from England and some, et cetera, but it has declined. And I mean, the whole country has, you know, faced political problems and obviously COVID as a result. And racing's not immune to that. They've got a contracting ownership base. The breeding industry side of it has contracted a little bit like New Zealand in terms of the number of broodmares being bred. And sadly for them, their ability to export their horses just won't, can't happen. And I'm, I'm not sure whether it'll ever happen because of African horse sickness. But their horses, the ones that do get out, go through all the, you know, the quarantine, et cetera, and get out and perform. We've seen that in Australia and mm. we've seen it in Hong Kong. You know, they are first world horses at third world prices because the rand, the way it is, it's, you know, very cheap to buy there. But it's just such a, uh, a mammoth task to get them anywhere uh, and the horse loses basically 12 months of its life in the process getting to wherever you want it to be potentially there's a second generation opportunity there and we're seeing that within the congo this year being out of the south african mare and i suppose the other challenge or one of many challenges south africa is likely to face is the passing of sheikh hamdan who's a huge supporter of racing yep in the area i want to ask you now we've set up the sort of three key areas that you've spent the last two decades uh servicing as, a, as an auctioneer observations about points of difference and i feel like we probably it, it seems quite obvious magic millions and new zealand bloodstock that the type of horse the type of uh races they, they might be going for the type of buyer where does south africa fit in what what how do you have to shift your focus when you when you go from one to the other uh, well, you know, I probably do more homework uh, when I sell in South Africa than any other sale, simply because while I'm au fait and I've got a little interest in a couple of horses over there, kitchen sort of interest in the, in the industry over there, and I'm forever reading the results to try and keep up with what's happening, I still have to sort of make sure that I know the pronunciation of the horse, who, which trainers, you know, going well, etc. And I suppose that was harder earlier on, albeit I haven't been back for a couple of years now. Um, uh, look, you know, their industry is, is is still good. You know, it's it remarkably good. The two-year-old sale I've just had went remarkably well, albeit on smaller numbers. Uh, stake money, you know, Puma Whaler's gone, uh, Mary Slack and, uh, and that have stepped up and taken over the running of that side of things. So there's some, as we like to terminology, green shoots going on in, in South Africa. Um, 
and long may it continue. Uh, that's that's the difficulty they have is because it's so insular. They are the only business they can sell to is their own. And, mm. and I suppose from my point of view, I've always said, and I said this particularly to a friend of mine when I was there having drinks after the sale. And the sad thing is that the, the blacks of South Africa, which are the predominant, you know, obviously 90% of the population just haven't bought into it, you know, whether they haven't, you know, so, you know, sadly it's, you know, you're, you've got a very small group of people that are involved in it, you know, and then while the, uh, you know, the, the blacks are there as grooms, et cetera, um, and are there at the races betting. They're not really horse owners, and it would be great to see them, you know, expand into that. Yeah, I mean, ultimately what this sport boils down to is it's, it's, it's an entertainment, isn't it? Popularity is what an entire industry lives and, and dies on. That's a really interesting observation. On the subject of popularity, I, I want to talk about Steve Davis, the auctioneer, Many say he's our favourite auctioneer. We love Steve Davis. We love his style. You'll get me an extra, you know, 10 grand or, or what have you. Some would say you're just an entertainer. Talk me through the evolution of, of that. You've said yourself earlier in our chat, you didn't start out the product you are now. No. What did you learn along the way? Oh, just to keep people entertained, I suppose, is to keep them in the, in the auditorium. Um, and not only to the people that are buying, uh, and I've always been of the opinion that if, if people, if you can get them to relax, it's a very tense situation. You know, I've bought horses. Mm. I've bought people, you know, horses on behalf. of nervous as hell. And that's why as an auctioneer, and you say, you, you, you know, I can spot people. They've, they've sat there half the day or whatever, and all of a sudden their demeanour changes. You can see how all of a sudden they stiffen up. They're looking around. They're, they're, and so you note that. Uh, so from an auctioneering point of view, I've always... You know, the belief if you're going to spend a hundred thousand, you might as well, you know, enjoy doing it. But also, if you can get people to relax and feel comfortable in this foreign environment, I mean, I'm in it all the time, I'm used to it, but these people aren't used to it. And if you can get them relaxed, you can form an association. Um, if you can, it's a bit like casinos, you know, you don't play, you don't go to the casino with cash, you know, because why? Because Jesus, you're not going to hand over five thousand, but you play with these chips, the inanimate chips, and so. Mentally, it's the same way. If you if you can get people to sort of forget about the money and think about the horse and what you're here for and you want it to buy, you want to win the derby, you want to win the slipper, you want to win the cup, whatever. If you can break it down, get away from the money side of things, you know, because if you sat there going $50,000 an hour to $50,000, $50,000 an hour to $50,000, people are going to get bored and say, would you hurry up and knock it down? But if you stop and start chatting, next minute, you're actually delaying the sale and you're giving the opportunity for the underbidder to bid. Um, you just, it's creating this, uh, conversation, I suppose, uh, to to allow people to give them time to have another bid. You know, there's some horses you're not going to get another bid on. You, you you use silence very well too, Steve. You, the, the power of silence, either yeah. to give them that time, or sometimes a, pe yeah. a person feels compelled to feel a silence. Right. So if you leave the silence, it's almost you can almost feel yourself wanting to fill it with with something. Is that a conscious thing? Or? Yeah, no question. Because it's you know we had a um, a voice person came to us at uh, it was rights and bloodstock back in those days, and we were discussing the benefits or not benefits of having a pedigree reader. And the one thing that she said about it, and I'll never, is it's, it becomes like white noise. It's at the same lot he was selling just before. So if you vary it, if you you have shade, dark, light. Um, mix it up, go quiet. All of a sudden, people start chatting. All of a sudden, shit, what's happened? They stop. Yeah. It draws people in, you know. And you and you and you 
you draw that, that you know, you you do the tattersalls moment, so to speak. You take that time to, you don't have to go with the patter. You know, you stop, you talk, you know, 50,000, 60,000, you know. Um, we, we don't want to get to the stage of taking too long, but you just, no. you want to mix it up. You want to vary it, you know. World champion sprinter Harry Angel, an electric dual group one winner with the precocity to claim the Mill Reef Stakes at two. Time form rated 132, more than star stallions exceeding Excel and Frosted, a son of outcross sire Dark Angel, Europe's answer to I Am Invincible. With outstanding first yearlings hitting sales rings this season and some of Godolphin's best mares in his early books, now is the time to invest in Harry before his offspring take flight. You started now to impart these little pearls of wisdom to, to coach uh, the, the next generation coming through. Is, is, are you, do you tend to, I don't want to use the term lecture because it, it, it's, it's almost pejorative, but do you, do you tell them how they can, they can elicit more money or do you observe and, and feed back? What's your style as a teacher? Yeah, I, I, you know, as long as they want to, and, you know, and I've often, and I'll say that, you know, um, you know, I'm at, currently, I mean, I'm having Zoom meetings with a young FISO who's a young black auctioneer in South Africa and I've tried to help him. And, and cool. But it's difficult not being there. You know, I'd love to be on the rostrum with him and say, hey, mate, you know, slow down, do this, do that, pull mm. him aside after and say, look, you, this is how you can improve. Um you know, but we've got some great auctioneers and I'll sit down and I, you know, I, you know, I sat down with Clint Donovan and went through the pedigrees, the families, Lincoln McKinley, um, you know, these, uh, the guys that are coming through, James Hedlington, Chris Farrell, you sit down with these guys and you go through the pedigree with them and say, hey, this mm -hmm. is the Trelawney family. This is the New Haven family. And if they can throw that stuff in, even though they didn't know it at the time, Second time, they don't need to ask Steve Davis, oh, that's that family. That's the New Haven family. And by saying it, buyers because they're so we're so precious about our industry think hey this this guy knows it's the new haven family. it's the new haven family all right it's it's the new haven family uh you know it's the trelawney family it's the eight character it's the denise's joy family mm. all these things which are part and parcel with the industry is where you 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 form credibility you create credibility by knowledge you know a hundred percent and and i do think there is for good or bad uh, there is an element in in the world of bloodstock that uh, is dismissive of someone who has a lack of reverence yeah. for what's gone before, um, and and it's it's worth playing to that. Can we talk about TV? When I was at Sky Racing, we used to get your previews, and obviously you'd be hosting trackside, and then we you know we encountered one another when I was travelling over to do Caracas sales. I got to see you before the. Before the, you were crossed to on a racetrack, we'd see you sitting there with the, the IFB in and, and you talk about people, their demeanour changing. When the cross came to you, your whole being changed a little bit. How is TV different to auctioneering? Because on face value, you're performing, you're behind a microphone, but they are quite different. Yeah, I, I suppose you are performing. I, my mental thing with, with um, again, with racing, and I, I had this problem with track, not problem, but I, I kept asking how much of what we do should be information um, and how much should be entertainment? Because at the end of the day, you know, you can't expect someone to bet on every race, albeit the TAB bet responsibly, wants you to, to make sure they try and do that. 
bet responsibly, uh, but have a bet on this race. You know, hang on, we're going to Wodonga Dogs. Where? Wodonga Dogs. You know, we were play, we were betting on places on a Monday. I'd have to look it up. I'd do Google search for people and I'd say, you know, and then you'd play this bet responsibly. You know, the bottom line is, again, you'd want to keep people entertained so that they're sitting there at 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock or whatever. Because a lot of people watch Trackside just because it's live. It's like watching ESPN or whatever and, and watching a football match just because it's live, not you follow it much or you're not going to bet on it. But if you can keep people entertained and, and get to the stage where race four, they say, you know what, I'm going to have a bet, you know? And, and you don't do it in such a way that, uh, if it loses, they're going to switch off. You want to keep yeah. them going. You know, you just, you know, bet responsibly, but at the end of the day, we want you to bet. Um, but you've got to keep them engaged. If they're going to switch off, go off somewhere else because it's that bloody boring to watch, um, then you lose, you're losing your audience. So that was always my, and I kept on, I'd ask, you know, how much of this should be information and or opinion? You know, let's face it, you know, um punting is all about opinions you know taking the information that we have and, and giving an opinion on it uh and the more the more you research the more you watch videos etc certainly your, your you know your, your ability to to pick a winner is going to improve over time uh but you've got as much chance and that's the beautiful thing about punting on horses to some extent is you know the the, the woman that bets on it because the, the jockey smiled or it's got the red colors or i like the name it's got just as much chance as you because of 50 to one shot the, the favorites don't win every race you know, uh, I, I completely agree. And uh, my um, early roommate when I first moved to Sydney, who had no idea which end of the horse you fed the hay into, uh, probably back more winners than me. Yeah. So that's very true. You touched on something in your, your answer there about the benefit that racing and sport in general, live events have. That is the thing that linear television is clinging to at the moment. You read a lot about it, right steals and that sort of thing, is live sport, racing being one of them, is a key pillar in keeping linear relevant in the era of Netflix, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, New Zealand's had a slightly slower take-up than some other areas of the world for those streaming services. Netflix famously took a while to get established in New Zealand, uh, that, that, that sort of thing. Can you see racing ever being able to make a streaming type offering work or to have content on these streaming products? Or is the live benefit always going to outweigh that and therefore be a target for linear television? Uh, I, I think there's an opportunity. The problem we have is sheer population and, and interest. You know, I think we need to have, you know, we go out of our way sometimes almost to recreate the wheel. You know, the best tri-code system in the world for me is in Australia. Mm. Um, let's just get on and, and follow that same model. You know, there's things that we've done here in New Zealand racing, and, and this is probably going to upset some of the harness people. You know, Australia doesn't have harness racing on a Saturday afternoon, do they? They don't no, have one. No, not, not, not during race time. day, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they have it all night. You know, it doesn't in the afternoon because we're looking for the best return, you know. But we have racing on it. You know, they can take three, four minutes to run a race. There are little things that we have done here in New Zealand. It's almost like we've gone out of our way to be different to Australia. We should be the eighth state or whatever we need to be is join up, you know. And I know now our TABs are uh, integrated. And I know that's probably going to happen in Australia in time, that you're going to have one TAB, you know, ultimately. Enjoying the podcast? There's so much more to uncover when you subscribe to the TDN AusNZ Daily Edition. 
sales reports, industry insights and interviews, race results with actual pedigree insight, even trivia. Go to tdnoznz.com.au and subscribe now. A lot of our talking about racing TV has centred around punting. And you you talked about that balance of entertainment and information. And is there a world where Saturday afternoon racing can be a 70% entertainment vehicle for the rank and file, given that we have these niche channels to service punters? I think you need a different, you know, for everything. Um, Because you need... It's, it's almost like we're competing with the roulette wheel at the casino, you know, mm-hmm. it, and there are some people that don't want to hear such and such and don't want to see the owner getting in, interviewed, but God, we need people to race the product. And I know it derives, that's where the stake money comes from, but geez, if we haven't got people that want to race the horse, um, you don't have a product. And, 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 and the, probably the accountants here in New Zealand are going to say, well, that's fine. We'll just bring the racing in from Australia. It's probably cheaper, cheaper, but it doesn't help our industry. Mm. So we've we've really for mine um, we've we've got to have a channel or a way of of highlighting the owner. You know, one of the sad things about Osh is Ellerslie used to have one of the best back parade rings. You know, yeah. it's like Keeneland, you used to stand on the outside looking. The owners would be in the inside, standing talking to the jockey, and you'd say, "Geez, one day, one day, I want to be in there talking to the jockey, and the other people looking at me. I want to be in the middle of Ellerslie." Well, of course, Osh. Now they're stuck in the corner behind a fence because obviously it's safer and everything else. Not that I can ever recall anybody really having any problems. You know, sadly, that's one of the downsides. But we really must engage and get people. It's like online sales. Christ, uh, the one thing about online sales, yes, they seem to be working, but how do we grow our industry? How do people fall in love with a horse behind a mouse? If you don't know the website to, you know, to, to, to log into, how do, you, how do you continue that love? You've got to sell the love of the horse. And it's, it's, it gets back to the track side and keeping people betting because if they lose the first time, they switch off and go away. You've got to form, they've got to love it. And, you yeah. know, one of the things, I used to follow Greyhound Racing here in New Zealand because there was a race caller, uh, Brian Martin, who was so passionate about it. So passionate. you'd say, what's it all about? What's, why is he so passionate? And so you, he draws you in. And that's the thing, you, we need... We need that on the TV. We need people with a passion for it, mm. not just a, I like the six ahead of the five, uh, or, you know, the, the, this is the, the plan. The six is going to go to the front. The seven's going to sit on the outside. You know, these speed ratings, speed maps, are so really worry me because people new to the industry are going to sit there and watch it and say, is this all contrived? Yeah. Because if it happens like that, they say, oh, it's contrived. And if it doesn't happen like that, they say, well, this is bullshit. Look, it's a it's a really interesting uh, point you're making, and I think I think there'd be a lot of people listening to this and nodding their head wisely. I don't want to editorialize, but we, uh, because I also think trainers, owners, breeders, they all punt as well. So the 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 premise that punters are funding the industry, I haven't ever spoken to a punter who, when he pl- puts his ten dollars down, goes, "This one's for the industry." Yeah, I know. You know, there there is there is an yeah. expectation of return from the punters. The thought that it's some altruistic act is in order to keep the industry going is is quite extraordinary. And the same goes for the breeding industry and the owners. And everybody is in it for, to a degree to get personal mm. feedback of, of some sort. The question is, how do we how do we reach the people that don't even know that there is the ability to get that feedback? 
Well, I, I think that one advantage that Australia has, and to a lesser extent New Zealand certainly does, is syndication. I think that's one of the, the real critical things that sets Australia, Australasia apart from the rest of the world, it has been the, the syndication and the growth thereof, and the well-managed syndicates and the people and the success that has come from it is it's the little bloke around the corner that's got a you know a five percent share. My son's got a one percent share in a standard brick. God, you think he owned the whole lot? You know, he is the greatest advertisement. He's 22, 20, no, he's 24 now. You know, the bottom line is he's the greatest advertisement because he it's it's like it's his horse. He's got one percent. Doesn't matter. He gets a hundred percent of the enjoyment, you know, and that's the thing about syndication. And and, and we need to keep showing that on TV, wherever, with streaming or whatever. We need to give the time to put the owners there to show the enthusiasm, the excitement. Of, of being a racehorse owner and people want to get drawn into that passion that, that being an owner shit i want to i want to feel that it's like a drug you know yeah. and that's the problem about this industry in some ways people get in want to get out they can't because why keeps pulling them back in keeps pulling them back in this industry like the godfather well it's been a pretty challenging 18 months for the world um but in the type of role you perform and i, I know personally it's been pretty challenging for you on reflection, what has there been stuff that you've learnt in the last 18 months about you and, and where you're at in the world that, that you think you, you can take forward? Yeah. Um, you know, my, my brother and my mother died last year. Um, uh, and, you know, while mother might have been expected, my brother, and of course he had, well, had cancer as well and was expected to some extent, but he died at 64. And all of a sudden you say to yourself, you know what, shit. You do that string from zero to 80 and you see where you are and you think how much of that's left. So, yeah, I've pulled back uh, and from thinking, you know, I don't want to be still auctioneering, uh, you know, that much longer than I need to, um, you know, because at the end of the day, I want to enjoy life. You know, mm -hmm. there are a lot of people out there that keep working and working and working because they love it. Yeah, I love it too, but I, I love doing other things. You know, we all love doing other things. Um, I sold one of our, we had a, a rental, which we sold uh, last month. Um, so we've diversified and, and, and no question. I'm, at, I'm that at age now where I am thinking that way, whereas my sons are thinking about their careers and where they want to go, et cetera. I'm at the stage now pulling back and saying, you know what, uh, as much as I've had a great time and, and enjoy love and love doing what I do, um, there is more to life uh, than being a, a bloodstock auctioneer or working on TV, et cetera. And, um, you know, you've got to take stock of that, you know, family, you know, as someone said, you know, the sale will still go on. Horses are still going to make their money, going to make overs and, and there'll be someone else come along. And, 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 you know, so I'm very mindful of that. And that's one thing about COVID and it has, you know, I suppose the impact of it all is the realisation that there is more to life than just work. Yeah. And I imagine, you know, the, one of the joys of your work has been the connections you've made over over time, and but possibly you don't get to appreciate them when it's entirely in a professional sense, right? Yeah, yeah, too true. Yeah, no, no question of that. You know, and often the breeders will only talk to me coming into the sales. You run past them in the street, the next <laughs> they don't even talk. No, that's not true. Look, um, you know, I'm I'm very fortunate. Um, you know, I've got a good relationship with a lot of people. Um, there might be some levity at times, but. I'm very strict in, in making sure I look at the horse, do the do my homework, do everything I can. 
to make sure I do my job well so that the, the vendors, um, you know, when, when and that's one of the advantages I have. I think at the end of the day, if, if they want 100,000, I turn around and say, listen, we've got 85,000. I'm flat out here. They're going to say, you know what? That's the market. Yeah. But, it, you know, I'm gonna, we're going to sell. But if I, I haven't looked at the horse, if I haven't mentioned the half-brother won a group one two weeks before, they're going to say, hang on a minute, you know, uh, this this may have, under different circumstances, made its 100,000, they'll pass it in or whatever. If you can show that you've done everything you possibly can, uh, then people will come with you and, and, and sell with you in that regard. All right, final question. Uh, and this is one I ask all the guests on the podcast. I know we're talking potentially about winding down professionally, but if you were made the Commissioner of Racing in New Zealand, what would you do on your first day? I'd reduce their costs. You know, um, I, I'd take, you know, we've, we've got all these people doing marketing and et cetera, and et cetera. The bottom line, what gets people to the races are good horses. What get people to ownership is, is stake money, um, increase, get a return to the people take the salaries out um, and put it into stake money, reduce your costs in such a way that you can increase stake money, get the stake money up uh, and that'll, it'll feed itself. It'll self-generate and, and get horses, good horses, because one of the biggest problems we have in New Zealand is we have good horses, but they often invariably get sold. And so we, we watch, you know, watch them from afar, the, the very elegance of this world, et cetera. And while we take some, you know, um, you know, satisfaction in knowing that they were New Zealand bred, et cetera, the fact is they they they, they was they're gone you know they're no longer here uh and racing here so the likes of the sun lines the bone crushes over the years have been marvelous for racing i know we've got the we've got the the, the summer type racing and you get all the people going up it, it's all very well getting in the one day you need to get them there for the second and third day you need them there for the midweeks you need them to own horses you know and that's the end of it you know i suppose the bottom line is we need to maintain and look after our owners you know i know the focus is on punting but the bottom line is owners. Without owners, you don't have product. Without product, you know, we'll be taking racing in from Australia. Steve, this has been a fantastic chat. I've really enjoyed it. Some fascinating insight. And, and for somebody who's been in the public eye for as long as you have, some stuff I didn't know. So that was, that was really enjoyable. I appreciate you coming on the Connections cast and wish you the best leading into 2022. Thanks, Gus. It's been a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this episode of TDN OzNZ's Connections Cast, brought to you by Newgate, raising top-class racehorses. Don't forget to give us a five-star rating and recommend us to friends. And of course, subscribe to TDN OzNZ's Daily Edition for the best thoroughbred news and information in the Southern Hemisphere. I've been Angus Rowland. Thanks for listening.